Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, and Dr. Michael Simone, Interactive Associate and Producer. Hello and welcome to another episode of FNS on Air. Today we're speaking about the upcoming March edition of the Fertility and Sterility Journal. And as always, I'm Pietro Bordoletto, and I'm joined with Editor-in-Chief of Fertility and Sterility, Kurt Barnhart. Hi, Kurt. Hello, everybody. Welcome. And today we have two special guests. You're used to hearing Eve Feinberg and Micah Hill, but substituting today for both of them are very own interactive associates, Dr. Erica New and Dr. Luis Hoyos. Luis and Erica, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for inviting me today. Big fan of the podcast and the usual host. Big shoes to fill it today. And for all those soccer fans out there, this feels like being called up to the national team. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be here again. We're so excited to have you guys. Thanks. Thank you both. Uh, we're going to lead off today with actually, Luis, you have a seminal contribution to tell us a little bit about. That's right, Pietro. So the title of the paper is Reproductive Urologic Consultation in Supertile Men. Predictors of establishing care and patient perceptions after abnormal semen testing. So this is a study coming out of Northwestern's Department of Urology with first author Dr. Pham and senior author Dr. Halpern with a commentary written by Dr. Meta from Emory. So this study has two portions. One is a retrospective cohort study whose objective was to evaluate the predictors of establishing care with a reproductive urologist among men who had an abnormal semen analysis ordered by a non-urologic provider, and the other portion was a cross-sectional survey which attempted to examine patients' accurate perception of an abnormal semen analysis when a reproductive urology consultation did not occur. Now, those men who had an abnormal semen analysis from 2002 all the way to 2018 were included for the retrospective cohort portion of the study, whereas those who had it done in 2019 were recruited for the cross-sectional survey. And what did they find? Well, basically among 2,283 men who had an abnormal semen analysis, only 20.5% had a reproductive urology consultation, and they found a substantial provider level heterogeneity among non-urologic providers in terms of referral to reproductive urology, ranging from 3.7 to 35.8%. Among the sperm parameters, oligospermia was the strongest predictor of reproductive urology care, followed by astenosospermia and teratosospermia. In addition, in a different model, consultation with a reproductive urologist was significantly associated and strongly predicted by the presence of azoospermia, multiple sperm abnormalities, and lower total model sperm count. In terms of the survey, the response rate was only 27.2%. And among those who responded and were not excluded because they saw an outside reproductive urologist, only 6.7% were actually referred to a reproductive urologist. In addition, only 22.7% appropriately perceived an abnormal semen analysis, although those that had oligospermia tended to recall having an abnormal semen analysis more frequently. So my question to the table is, 
Do you also feel that the implications of an abnormal semen analysis often tends to be oversimplified by REIs as long as we have so much sperm to do ICSI with? A bit of a leading question, but I'll answer um, in between. Uh, I think as an REI, we sometimes do oversimplify the complications of a semen analysis because really all we are is focused on the egg and the embryo when all we want is fertilization. So yeah, maybe there's some merit to that statement. But I also think that paper clearly shows that abnormal semen analysis often look overlooked by a lot of physicians and that, that uh, unless you're actually seeing someone with interest in reproduction, you, you might not be getting good care. Uh, and so therefore the subspecialty is really important. I think especially if you're trying to contextualize normal versus abnormal as it relates to the semen analysis, some of these abnormalities we're talking about are two standard deviations away from what the average person has. So they definitely warrant evaluation. But I think getting to the evaluation is really tough. There's a lot of men who just have a hard time even coming in for carrier screening, much less going to a, a reproductive urologist for consultation. And then sometimes just the delays in care. You can see a world in which REIs are just less likely to refer to go see a male infertility specialist if it means delaying care four, six, eight, 12 weeks before they're able to come back and just do ICSI. It also kind of shows us that we don't know what we don't know. This shows us a world of patients that we don't see. You know, we're busy, we're busy clinicians. People come to us, our waiting list is too long, but there's a lot of people that didn't know how to get to us. And I think that's why this was a seminal contribution showing us that there's a lot of care that is not as good as we think it is and how important it is to really get to a reproductive specialist early. Yeah, because I mean, in my opinion, it's not only the reproductive aspect of this. I mean, we know, and it was stated in the commentary by Dr. Mehta, is that you know, there's the possibility of missing an underlying somatic health condition in these men. So it is in their best interest to actually be evaluated by a reproductive urologist every time we do this. I mean, and even potentially, this could prevent suboptimal reproductive outcomes after treatment. Couldn't agree more. Erica, we're going to turn over to you. You have something from the ASRM pages, a new committee opinion that just came out. Yes, they recently updated the committee opinion on multiple gestation associated with infertility. And um, I could talk about twins all day. I, I really enjoyed this, uh, especially as a twin mom myself. But, you know, overall, I feel like when we see our patients, they're either very pro multiples or they are terrifyingly afraid of having multiples. And this committee opinion kind of goes over all the risks of twin and higher order multiple gestations. Twins kind of put us in a tricky situation because no matter what we do, we can never fully eliminate the risk of twins or higher order multiples. Um, even with single embryo transfer, there is a risk of monozygotic twinning. But our goal is always to maximize the chance of pregnancy while minimizing the chance of a multiple gestation. We want one healthy baby at a time. This committee opinion has some really interesting, just fun facts about multiples they have noticed a big increase in the rate of multiple births, kind of steadily increasing from the 1980s until 2014, when um, luckily the rate has then started to decline in more recent years. But there was an increase in as much as a 79% relative increase with the risk of um, having twins as one in 29 births. That was in 2014. Um, when we're considering the higher order multiples like triplets or quadruplets or more, that peak in um, those gestations were mostly driven by infertility treatment. And we can attribute a lot of this to practices in IVF, such as multiple embryo transfer 
or patterns of ovarian stimulation and um, medications used. We also have had increasing success rates with ART, which can definitely contribute to that. And despite the high rate of twins and high-order multiples from ART, it is interesting to know that actually the majority of twins, about 60%, are from natural conception. The rate of twins also does vary by ethnicity. Interestingly enough, in Japan, it's only 1.3 per 1,000 births. In the U.S. and Europe, about 8 per 1,000 births. And in Nigeria, it's actually 50 per 1,000 births. But the rate of monozygotic twinning is usually fairly consistent, and four per 1,000. So some things that are really important to consider when you're talking about twins are, why are we so concerned with trying to reduce twins in higher order multiples? And that's because they come with a very high rate of complications. Particularly, you can think about them in terms of maternal complications, such as higher higher rates of preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, preterm labor, placental abruption, postpartum hemorrhage, the list goes on and on. And then when we're thinking about the babies, there is an increased risk of fetal demise, mortality, a, a very low and low birth weight, and then all those consequences of preterm birth, such as cerebral palsy, retinopathy of prematurity, bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Some other factors to consider are the economic impacts of this too. While we all, I'm sure, love a great BOGO deal, twins are truly not two for the price of one. Studies actually show they're closer to two for the price of five. Medical costs are five times greater than with a singleton pregnancy. Um, You're going to get more uh, monitoring when you're pregnant, more ultrasounds. If you are unfortunately having to be admitted to the hospital, you've got those hospital costs there. You're going to have two delivery fees. You're going to have to buy two car seats at the same time. You can't do those hand-me-downs. It just adds up quickly. So why do so many patients want twins? A lot feel this sense of urgency They want to try to increase their chance of getting pregnant, and so they'll therefore accept those higher risks. There also can be some financial reasons, although we talked about twins being much more expensive. In states that have mandated insurance coverage for IVF, there actually are lower rates of twins, and perhaps this is because people are able to afford treatment without feeling like they have to spend all their money on one cycle, and it's got to be successful to have a, a baby or two. Some things that this committee opinion goes through are how things we can do to try to limit the, the risk of multiples, such as the updated in 2017 um, recommendations on how many embryos to transfer, such as um, only transferring you know, one embryo if it's euploid at any time. And for women who are less than 38, if they have a good prognosis, only transferring one embryo. And then also some, some things just to remember on when you're doing ovulation induction, for example, letrozole, especially in patients with PCOS, we use has higher live birth rates with lower chance of multiples. So I think the biggest thing, we all have really been focusing on single embryo transfer, but one of the bigger things to consider, and I think one of the the most challenging things that we encounter is when we're doing ovulation induction, how we decide when a patient has multiple follicles developing, when to cancel a cycle to try to reduce the risk of multiples. And I'm curious if you guys have a set cutoff for how many follicles you use when you would consider having to cancel a cycle, or if this is a discussion between you and and your patients, kind of how do you balance this? I mean, I think that it's definitely a discussion. And for that, I think, I mean, I'm not alone. I used the tool that came out of the article by our own Blake Evans. And basically, I just call up the patient and say, based on your age, based on the number of follicles you have, the probability of you getting pregnant is this. The probability of getting having a multiple pregnancy is this. If you get pregnant, the risk of having twins, triplets, and quads is this, this, and that. 
And basically, it's a, a decision that we make. But I also use the heat map. And if it's red, then, then definitely I usually do not go for it. I'll be a little contrarian on this. I, having lived through this in my career, it was really hard to get people to go to single embryo transfer. And I think what convinced the field was cryopreservation that you weren't giving anything up and therefore you could have really good success rates on a relatively simple procedure afterwards. But really what's pushing it still is the patient preference. And we have to address the patient preference because we're pretty good at letting our patients tell us what they want, but we need to tell them, no, this is a line that we shouldn't cross. And we're getting there in, in, in um, embryo transfer, but I don't think we're there in ovulation induction yet. So I think using heat maps, at least in my opinion, is hard because patients don't get that kind of risk scoring. They don't really understand because that, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to win the lottery and I'm not going to be in a car crash. So I think we have to be as definitive with ovulation induction that we are with, with embryo transfer and say, this is too high risk and cancel. I'm not saying patients don't have autonomy. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm just saying we need to tell patients sometimes what's in their best interest. Erica, you did mention that you're a twin mom yourself. Do you mind sharing a little bit about how you counsel patients who are asking, do I really want to have twins? Do I want to ovulate these three, these three follicles all at once and, and have the IUI or should I forego the cycle? I think it's a very tough conversation because anyone who has, I mean, any, anyone loves their children. And so I, you know, can't tell people that, or patients that, oh, I don't love my twins, but I do tell them that there are very serious risks and a lot of them we have experienced. They come with a lot of complications, increased monitoring, increased costs, increased social stress. So I really heavily emphasize all of those things to my patients. And I think all of us can remember our labor and delivery days where we saw so many poor outcomes, premature deliveries. So I really, I have that serious conversation with my patients and um, if they do get pregnant with twins, obviously I'm very excited for them, but we have these very serious conversations early on. But, but we as a profession need to stop glamorizing twins. I'll tell a quick anecdote. My friend Christos Kudaferis, we were out to dinner with something in Philadelphia and there was a reporter next to us and, and they were saying, isn't it wonderful? We had this picture of quadruplets on the screen. It isn't acute. And he told her, you know, it's your fault that people still have quadruplets because you're making them look beautiful in the media. That has to stop. And she turned white and aghast and didn't think she was doing any harm. But it's that kind of thing. We have to stop that message. We have to say twins aren't a choice. Twins, twins really are not what we're striving for. And we're doing really well with IVF, but I don't think we're doing so well with ovulation induction yet. Erica, you have the next article or a slight change of pace here um, in the andrology section. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this Tessie article? Yes, this article is called Testicular Sperm Characteristics in Men with Non-Obstructive Azospermia and Their Impact on Intracytoplasmic Sperm Injection Outcome. And this is by Abu Shaba and senior author Peter Schleigel. And this study was looking at patients with non-obstructive azospermia, which is a severe manifestation of male infertility affecting about 1% of the male population. And in these patients, the gold standard of treatment is to do microdissection testicular sperm extraction or microtessy um, with ICSI. This allows us to use sperm that would otherwise have a very limited chance of naturally fertilizing oocytes. When we do use ICSI, often uh, modal sperm are chosen, which is thought to be a surrogate marker for sperm viability, but little is known about whether motility or other semen analysis characteristics at the time of ICSI actually impact fertilization and pregnancy rates. 
So this study was a retrospective study of 198 men who underwent a successful microtestic procedure and looking at the sperm parameters on the day of ICSI, particularly looking at the sperm motility and the morphology to see if that had an impact on the fertilization rate and the clinical pregnancy rate. In this cohort, the overall fertilization rate was 44% per injected oocyte, and the clinical pregnancy rate was 38% per ICSI cycle. Concerning the motility, when they injected a modal sperm versus an immodal sperm, it did result in a higher fertilization rate and clinical pregnancy rate. In the modal group, fertilization was 48% versus only 20 in the immodal group. And this clinical pregnancy rate was 44% versus only 19% in the immodal group. When they were looking at morphology, if the sperm had a normal acrosome, then they did have a higher fertilization and clinical pregnancy rate. And the sperm that only had short tails, those were actually associated with lower fertilization rates. What I think is most interesting is that there was no finding that precluded successful fertilization. Even though they saw these trends towards higher or lower fertilization rate, there was no there were still some immodal sperm or very abnormal looking sperm that were still able to fertilize. I think this was a really well done study of a very interesting question. And I find the data reassuring for those microtesty cases where we have very few or less than ideal sperm obtained. We should be careful, however, with how we generalize these results as we know sperm morphology is subjective and very andrologist dependent. And this was at a single center and was retrospective. So we might not be able to generalize these findings to other andrologists or other centers. I'm curious if you all get routinely get feedback from your andrologists or embryologists on the sperm morphology when there's a procedure that's involving ICSI. Have you subjectively noticed any differences in these or are you really just getting that feedback at the time of the, the micro TESI procedure? I think this is a little bit of a black box to many of us that aren't in the lab. And I'm glad to see a paper like this that clarifies a little bit. Years ago, I remember the, my lab telling me it doesn't matter as long as we get a sperm, the outcome will be just as good. I always thought that probably didn't sound right. And this is now at least confirming that suspicion. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to, to see the, again, the high level of this, that the sperm quality matters. It's not just any sperm, but I agree with you. Subjectivity of which is the best, we still have a long way to go. I think the biggest reason why this paper should be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt, this, this is coming from an expert center with an expert operator. As you know, Dr. Schlegel first to describe the microtessie technique and one of the other co-authors, John Piero Palermo, the innovator of ICSI, so that you really kind of have the deck stacked in terms of having the best possible outcome with a microtessie procedure in their hands. But certainly, I love a good paper that's useful for patient counseling and the patients will ask you, yes, you found sperm, but is there anything else you can tell me? This is great for doctors and for patients who under undergo these procedures. Yeah, we've had this discussion, Pietro. I know it cracks Micah up, but this is one of those papers where you have to let it flow over you. You don't want to get caught in the details and, and, and say this specific finding applies to my patient. But the finding that quality of the sperm matters is an important finding. Amen. Kurt, you're actually up next. We have a paper in the artificial intelligence section, and it feels like we're kind of at a steady clip here at FNS. We keep getting more and more of these and. Unfortunately, I think you're just going to become our go-to guy to explain these methods to us simpleton since you're the smartest guy in the room. Tell us a little bit about your article. Thank you for the, the compliment there, but I don't think I'm the smartest person in the room, but I, I do enjoy um, the artificial intelligence. And this is a good paper. I was happy to see this one get through the process and discuss it. 
So the paper is titled Characterization of Artificial Intelligence Model for Ranking Static Images of Blastocyst Stage Embryos by Kevin Loki and my friend Tex Vermillier. Uh, it's really, it's a consortium of a lot of centers, including the Allied Health Group Incorporated Company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, which I'm glad they put that up there as their interest. So the objective of this study was laudable because it wants to perform a series of um, analyses characterizing artificial intelligence for ranking blastocysts. The primary objective was to evaluate a model for predicting clinical pregnancy rate, whereas the secondary objective was towards you know, how it actually could be used in clinical care. As mentioned, this was a consortium from a large number of centers, and it looked at almost uh, 6,000 transferred blastocysts. I found this topic of interest because it's clear that embryo evaluation is probably the most important aspect of IVF. And currently, we use a morphologic rating system that looks, as we all know, like blastocyst expansion and the quality of the inner cell mass to determine which embryo should be transferred first. We even use that grading system when we have pre-implantation genetic testing. We still still look at the embryo and, and say this one looks better than the other one. So, but it's also probably the most human-prone error, right? It's looking at a static image and someone's making a judgment, and we can be very biased by our mood. Um, our distractions in the room, or perhaps even our training. So it's intuitive that I think artificial intelligence could be used in this circumstance. So uh, artificial intelligence, sometimes called deep learning or machine learning, might be able to identify subtle differences that might not be apparent to the human eye or that we might process slightly differently than a computer. It can really focus on complex patterns and perhaps using those patterns better predict embryo quality than, again, what we've decided as the number one or number two scoring system and things like that. So evaluation with artificial intelligence involves multiple steps. First, there's something called a training set, and you can use a variety of models to um, have the computer learn, which is the best variables that predict outcome. In this case, they use something called convolutional neural networks. In essence, the computer looks at all the images, and then you tell it what the outcome is, meaning in this case, clinical pregnancy rate, and it can determine which pattern of these variables can get you closest to the best prediction. So you end up coming up with a kind of black box algorithm. Now, the algorithm is by definition, and this is a term in the art, called computer generated, meaning the computer is going to keep trying every possible permutation until it gets the highest statistical prediction. And sometimes those predictions don't make sense or use variables multiple times, and therefore it's hard for us to grasp exactly what it's looking at. But the idea is, again, it's using patterns to recognize the outcome. So once the model is determined, the next step is then you have to validate it. You have to say in another data set, will it actually find the same things? Because it worked really hard in that one data set to make it perfect, but the other data set might be slightly different. So in order to validate this AI models, it should be compared to both what the gold standard is, in this case, morphology, but also the outcome of interest, which is clinical pregnancy rate, and actually did that in both ways in this paper. So the advantage of this particular paper is that it used static images from low-power microscopy, which is generalizable that most labs could use. The other advantage was that these embryos were actually transferred, so they actually know which ones became pregnant, um, resulted in a pregnancy, and which ones did not. In this case, by the way, they used fetal heart rate as the uh, outcome. 
So as I mentioned, the two main outcomes of the study was able to predict, and that is a statistical term called area under the curve. We've talked about this on this podcast before. If you got a, a prediction of one, 100%, you would have an area under the curve of 100 or one. If you got no prediction, it'd be zero. If you got a prediction of 50-50, uh, it would be um, 50%. And then they also looked at how it would compare to whether I used my morphology criteria and also if I used my AI. So you could actually compare, for lack of a better word, success rates using the two different ways. I'll get into that in a second. So let's talk about it a little bit. So the area under the curves were somewhere between 61 and 75%. That's considered good, but not great. But it really shows us that it's hard to predict which embryo is going to result in a pregnancy. And even a best embryo doesn't always result in a pregnancy, which is why the area under the curves seem a little bit lower than you might expect. But the area under the curves was about six to 10 points higher for the artificial intelligence than for the morphologic models. So again, AI was a little bit better, but overall, it's still not, it's still not very good at predicting pregnancy mostly because not every embryo put back, even though it looks perfect, results in a pregnancy. So the next analysis they did was they randomly picked four embryos, and then they had the computer pick which would be the best embryo to transfer, and then they could say, what happened to that embryo? Now, again, this isn't an individual patient, it's mathematic, but if, for example, the artificial intelligence picked embryo two and the um, morphology picked embryo one, you could then mathematically compare what was the chance of getting pregnant and in what order. Uh, when they performed that analysis, they also show that the pregnancy rate with this artificial intelligence model was about five to 12% better than morphology. Again, still small, um, but very desirable improvements. Who wouldn't want a, you know, overall five to seven percent better pregnancy rate by, by their program, right? You know, you can go from forty-five to fifty. That might sound small statistically, but that, that's a huge jump. So I think this is pretty good. So this 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 study you should read not only for the the, the idea that it improves pregnancy rates, but it actually describes AI very well. It's a very clear and very transparent, which is nice. So I'll give you a couple anecdotes. They appropriately found a couple forms of bias in their original model. They found that the optics of the picture, which was slightly different in some clinics than the other, were actually predictive of pregnancy rates. If you think about it, that's because one clinic was slightly better than the other, not because the embryo was better than another. And they also found that the, if the picture had a holding pipette in it, it had a better pregnancy rate. Again, showing some different techniques in laboratories. I'm sure you all remember my wonderful anecdote about wolves and huskies and that the, that artificial intelligence was able to pick out the difference between a wolf and husky because one picture had snow in it. So this was akin to the same idea and they identified that and were able to remove it. Now, let's be a little more tutorial about AI. The next thing you wanna look at is something called feature selection. What actually drove the prediction? What was making this black box pick a better embryo? And it ends up, again, transparently described in this paper, that artificial intelligence was basically looking at the same things the, the embryologist was looking at. In other words, there's no euphoria here. They didn't find some new variable that was predicting success, but they were, they were still looking at basically expansion of a blastocyst and tightness of the triceptoderm. Just AI did it better than a human, which again goes back to the point that a computer might be able to pick a better embryo based on our, our, our own standards now than a human can because we're human. 
I'll give you another anecdote. Those of you who've heard me talk, I work with working dogs, and some of the working dogs are sniffing cancer. And people always ask me, well, how is a dog going to go in there and sniff somebody and know if it's cancer? And then finally, it was explained to me, well, they're not expecting the dog to go into the nursing home and smell cancer because they're going to find the French fry under the bed. They're, you know, they're only human too. What, they're, what, they, what the, they're using the dogs to do is saying, what are you sniffing? And then let's make a mechanical nose to sniff that because it removes the variables of human nature, of canine nature, or whatever we're talking about. So the embryologist, if it's a bad mood, doesn't have to worry if they're picking the right embryo, if the microscope isn't bad, or, you know, or whatever scenario you want to play. So the take-home message is it's still really hard to predict the best embryo, and we really don't know why really good embryos fail to implant. Now, we can talk about endometrial receptivity and implantation failure at a later date, and I'm Sure, we will, but, but this is basically saying even if we use our same standards, unfortunately, a machine might be able to do a better job than a human. So a nice primer in AR in general. It has development. It has validation. It has the biases addressed. It's well-designed. It's multi-center. It's a nice design. Unfortunately, it just doesn't have the breakthrough that we we're all looking for, which was the new variable or something like that. Now, you also might enjoy reading The Reflection by Carly Lynn, uh, I think it's Churko is the way it's pronounced it. She's from ART Compass, and she gives a wonderful title for who the artificial bell tolls, pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, does it toll for thee? So she very colorfully and not traditional um, editorial language describes why she thinks artificial intelligence is going to replace PGTA, uh, that PGTA is going to be the victim of disruptive innovation. In other words, an underrated service replaces that of the conventional. A very Silicon Valley term, yes, but they're basically saying that AI is going to be the disruptor. So listen, I can't disagree with her editorial. There are lots of drawbacks that we all know about PGTA, about actual the biopsy itself. Um, is it reproducible? Is it hurting the embryo? Uh, and AI is certainly non-invasive. So if, an, if a, an, a non-invasive computer can select an embryo just as well as a trosteftoderm biopsy, then by definition, we should be no longer doing biopsy. Having said that, I'm not exactly sure we're there yet. She's making the analogy that uh, by 2030, the trophectoderm biopsy will be go the way of the blockbuster video store, which has now been replaced by Netflix. So we'll see if that happens. But nonetheless, I'm glad these papers are getting through to us. You know, sometimes science lags getting to reproductive medicine. Artificial intelligence has been used in a lot of fields. And I think this is showing that we have some value in our our field as well. So what do you guys think about that? Um, overall, computers are going to replace us. Is this a good enough uh, improvement? I, I actually love this paper, and not because there wasn't a huge, big, shiny finding that it found something new and interesting about embryos that the embryologists were missing, but they have a very nice line in the discussion that says that AI models may be applying some of these learned morphologic features just more consistently and objectively throughout the full spectrum of embryo morphologies. To me, if I'm an embryologist reading that line, I think this is a helpful adjunct. This is not something that's coming to re replace my, my job and, and, and kick me out of the embryology lab, but is this something that could help me be more consistent and more objective in my grading? Could it help free me up for tasks that a machine can't yet do? And I love it. I think this is great. And if you look at the author list here, there's a couple of big centers. One, my, my own center here, Wild Cornell, uh, as well as actually I think Louise's center in, in Florida participated in this trial. 
I think the big groups are looking at this as a helpful adjunct to not necessarily dramatically increase pregnancy rates and embryo selection, but how can we deal with a workforce that is tough to train, tough to get up to speed in a small space where you have a hard time cramming a lot of people to increase your volume? And does AI have a role in just alleviating some of the inconsistencies of, of human scoring things and the shortage of high quality embryologists across the country? And I think that's another potential nice angle of what this paper accomplishes. Yeah, I think the unanswered question, and I'll give it to, to Luis and, and Erica to answer this question and give their own comments is, is this going to be a proprietary system or is this going to be like, you know, you just go learn how to do morphology and then use it on your own lab? There's a bit of an arms race for someone to be the first one to have an AI system that they can sell to everybody, whereas perhaps instead what we really need is just really good standardization. So what do you guys think? I mean, I almost feel like this is, I mean, first of all, innovation is here to stay, right? And whatever we can get out of it that will help us in our workflow, you know, it's definitely welcome. I do think that's probably going to be proprietary. I just feel that's going to be easier is like, I mean, the, the example that I think of is culture media, right? Uh, back in the day when they used to make, each lab will, used to make their own culture media. And now we just buy culture media, which is standardized. So I think it's probably going to be very similar. I think there's just so much variation lab to lab, as we know, when we're talking about our previous paper too, about you see different outcomes from different labs, that might there be different findings in different labs that would, you should kind of develop your own AI algorithm based on your lab. I think there are a lot of things that could go into it that would require each lab to have their own ability to perfect it or to change it or to optimize it. But I think it is a fascinating concept and can't wait till this is prime time and everyone has it, but I think we had a long way to go. But, you know, when you think about it, morphology is morphology, right? So besides the optics from the picture, I mean, what else is going to change? But it's inherently subjective by whoever's choosing that morphology, whoever's grading that blastocyst. Yes, they have the, you know, the little guidelines you're reading, but as we were saying before, everyone's got their own kind of opinion. Well, the, the real beauty of this paper is that it's a validation of a model. I'm giving you a hint to everyone that wants to publish in Fertility and Serility. The discovery of AI is not novel. The validation that it works is novel, and that's, and that's what's noteworthy. But the advantage of AI is that you can have a new model. You can incorporate non-invasive molecular markers into your AI. You can also incorporate micros, you know, in addition to your microscopic markers or even your biopsy answers. So it's, this one happens to be just on morphology, but the ones that are coming out in the future might also include other biomarkers or other things. And that, I think, will be a real advancement. All right, great discussion. We're going to keep moving to the next section, which is a section of articles I'm going to be presenting. So there are two articles in this upcoming FNS that are actually very near and dear to my heart. Perinatal outcomes following assisted reproductive technologies. Many of our listeners probably don't know this, but I'm married to a maternal fetal medicine specialist, so we actually spend a lot of time talking about this. The first article is entitled Perinatal Outcomes of Singleton Live Births After PGT During Single Frozen Thawed Blastocyst Transfer Cycles, a Propensity Score Match Study by Zhang et al. So this group knows that the overwhelming body of data suggests that IVF with PGT is safe with just thousands and thousands of healthy live borns in the last decade. 
However, there have been studies in the last several years that have raised the concern of elevated risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy in PGT-conceived pregnancies. Fortunately, many of these studies have flaws. Some have suffered from confounding, small sample sizes. This retrospective study sought to explore these perinatal outcomes in live births with PGT versus without PGT at a larger scale with adjustment for several important confounders. To do this, they reviewed their singleton live births from 2017 to 2020 in China where single embryos transferred. Importantly, the, this is modern day vitrification with trophectoderm biopsy, which a lot of the old studies that have shown a signal for hypertensive disorders of pregnancy being associated don't necessarily include both. So this is modern practice. They excluded donor eggs, they excluded pregnancies where vanishing twins were noted, and obviously no fresh transfers here. So they looked at programmed, stimulated, and natural FET cycles. At their center, a natural FET may or may not have included an HCG trigger. The stimulated cycle utilized letrozole, and programmed cycle utilized estrogen and progesterone with or without downregulation. The perinatal outcomes that they were most interested in were gestational hypertension and preeclampsia separately, not lumped together, as well as a host of other pertinent outcomes such as PROM, PREVIA, prematurity, birth weights, and defects. To attempt to reduce the confounding bias, multivariable logistic regression and linear regression was performed that adjusted for the things you'd want to adjust for. Age, BMI, gravidity, type of infertility, as well as the FET protocol that was used, which I think is great. There was, however, a small sample size of patients who underwent PGT, only 232. So to work with this small sample size, they utilized propensity score matching to identify PGT patients most similar to the non-PGT group and match them one to three. So what do they find? The big takeaway here is that the risk of gestational hypertension was almost two and a half times higher in the PGT group compared to the non-PGT group after propensity score matching and adjustment for those important covariates. There were no differences in preeclampsia, prematurity, birth weight, and birth defects. This finding similar to what other groups have shown, Feldman et al., Makajani et al., who have both found higher risk of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy with PGT, but none of these studies stratified gestational hypertension separately from preeclampsia, which this study did and only found an association for gestational hypertension. Furthermore, I think this study rightfully adjusted for the FET protocol type, which to me makes sense if you believe that the presence of a corpus luteum is valuable for risk-reducing hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. We're going to put a cliff note in that because it actually ties into the next article nicely. Lastly, I want to applaud the authors for using propensity score matching. It's not something that we see a lot of in reproductive medicine, but I think it's a perfect application here. So for those less familiar with propensity score matching, it's basically a statistical technique that attempts to estimate the effect of a treatment or intervention by accounting for the covariates that predict receiving that treatment or intervention. You use it to reduce confounding bias that could be found in an effect estimate from simply comparing outcomes in two treatments or exposure groups. Plainly said, is there something important about the patients who are recommended or opted for PGT, say their BMI, pre-existing conditions, or past obstetric history that could be confounding an association with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy? So kudos to the authors for this. I thought this was a nifty statistical test to use and love seeing it. And finally, it's important to remember that while we're talking about an association with PGT and gestational hypertension with a kind of a dramatic statistically significant odds ratio, we're really talking about a difference of 2.3 versus 5.1%. 
And in this study, that meant 11 people in one arm versus 14 people in the other arm. So this isn't the nail in the coffin that we're looking for, but I think it certainly adds to a growing body of evidence to suggest that there probably is some association, but we really haven't drilled down on what exactly that association is. And more importantly, how can we potentially risk reduce it or select patients who are most likely to have this outcome and risk reduce their fresh embryo transfer cycles? Yeah, but Pietro, the big picture here is not the small differences, is that that, again, and we look really big, people are getting pregnant with our techniques and we're focusing on pregnancy in the first transfer or time to pregnancy. But if we can safely have people get a family with a little more time and remove or lower many of these comorbidities for the mother and the child, why aren't we? We really got to change the focus to overall health and not statistics on the first transfer. Couldn't agree with you more. Erica? If you think about gestational hypertension and preeclampsia as being on a spectrum, why do you think they only found the association in those with gestational hypertension and not also preeclampsia? I have to imagine a little bit of that is just the behavior of the obstetricians. You have a woman who's conceived with a frozen embryo transfer with PGT, who's likely in her late 30s to early 40s, and at 37 weeks starts to develop gestational hypertension. That patient's going to be a little bit more aggressively managed and potentially move towards delivery sooner than the patient who shows up with fulminant preeclampsia. So I think you're probably delivering patients early before it develops into preeclampsia, is my guess for some subset of these patients. There's another paper in this upcoming FNS, one by Zhao et al., that's entitled The Impact of Different Cycle Regimens on Birth Weights of Singletons in Frozen Thawed Embryo Transfer Cycles in Ovulatory Women. So this was a retrospective study of over 2,600 ovulatory Chinese women who had live-born singletons following either natural artificial, or stimulated FET cycles, with the goal of comparing birth weight, as well as incidence of SGA, LGA, and again, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So why is this worth looking at? Well, several studies have demonstrated that when compared to fresh embryo transfer, FET is associated with low preterm birth, low rate of low birth weight, and SGA, but a pretty consistent higher risk of large for gestational age, and again, the signal of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. The reason for differences in birth weight hasn't been entirely sorted out, and some have suggested that maybe due to the presence or absence of a corpus luteum, amongst many other likely contributors. I want to start here by explaining what the authors mean when they say natural, programmed, and stimulated, because it may not be exactly what you imagine these mean. In their hands, a natural frozen embryo transfer meant monitoring of a dominant follicle with HCG to trigger ovulation, followed by didrogesterone. 20 milligrams twice a day for luteal support. Not necessarily a natural cycle in the tr truest of senses. Artificial FET meant oral estradiol, and then either vaginal or intramuscular with oral progesterone added, based on the patient preference. No mention of downregulation here in these ovulatory patients, but again, a little different than what we, I think, in the U.S. considered artificial FET cycle. And finally, stimulated cycle in this ovulatory cohort meant letrozole for three days, followed by 75 units of HMG if no dominant follicle was noted by cycle day 10. Follicles were then triggered with HCG and luteal support with oral progesterone. This part's a little funny because these are ovulatory women after all, but I digress. So in women who are in fact ovulatory, who have the option for all three types of FETs, what did they find? 
So after adjusting for the things you would want to adjust for, like age, BMI, parity, and notably they adjusted for PGT here, so trophectoderm biopsy, amongst several other um, important covariates, they performed a multivariable logistic regression and found that compared to natural cycles, the odds of having an LGA infant increased significantly in the artificial cycle group, odds ratio of 1.43, as did the odds of hypertensive disorder of pregnancy, 1.75. Expectedly, simulated FET cycles were very similar to natural FET cycles in terms of odds for practically every perinatal outcome, except for low birth weight. Again, importantly, to contextualize what these odds mean in terms of raw percentages, hypertensive disorder of pregnancy was 4.4% in the artificial FET group versus 2.5% in the natural cycle group and 2.9% in the stimulated cycle group. To me, this study, again, adds to a growing body of literature that seems to implicate that the corpus luteum is important in at least some pregnancy outcomes, particularly the ones that have a placentally mediated outcome, and probably more important for some women who are already at risk for having some of these outcomes. And it, I feel like I'm beating a, a drum to death here, but if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard me talk about risk-reducing IVF. So let's say it clearly. In ovulatory women who have the option for FET, where corpus luteum is present, you may, in some women, have an opportunity to reduce the risk of adverse placentally mediated outcomes. I think a thorough OB history, good medical history, can really help you risk stratify who stands to benefit the most and give you an opportunity for shared decision-making. I make these statements with retrospective data, and I want to make sure that everyone stays tuned for the results of some prospective data. The NetPro study that's being run out of Johns Hopkins is a two-armed parallel group, multi-center RCT, that's looking at exactly this. FET in women who are randomized to either undergo modified natural cycle where corpus luteum is present or program cycle with the primary outcome being preeclampsia. So I think pretty soon we're going to have some prospective randomized data to suggest that we actually do have an opportunity for risk reduction. Kurt, what do you think? I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think we should be taking this into our account. We shouldn't be just picking our protocols based on what gives us the highest success rate based on the first transfer. We should be looking at this and tailoring it to you know, what's the best protocol for the person's diagnosis and underlying situation. I mean, I feel like people are just waiting for the results of the randomized controlled trial, the NATPRO, to make a decision, of course. And again, I, I think that these cannot be part of our decision-making, but <laughs> what the elephant in the room is the, the loss of flexibility in the lab when you're just doing modified natural cycles, right? Especially taking into account, like Pietro was saying earlier, that the staffing in the, in, in the lab is also difficult nowadays. To me, it's not a good enough reason not to do it. I completely agree. I completely agree. But these are, these are solvable yeah. problems. If they, mm -hmm. if they, you know, you, you, you learned that in high school debate. If the answer is it's inconvenient for you to make the change, you've lost the argument. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of patients who are reading the blogs, hopefully listening to the podcast and hearing the message that a natural cycle in some women may actually be safer. I think that's something that your patients are going to show up at, across your table and start asking you for, and you're going to have to make a really strong argument for why they should or shouldn't be doing that. To me, I think the group that we're missing here that you probably have the biggest bang for your buck is in, in, in anovulatory women, which traditionally have been shuttled towards programmed FET cycle. I want to know whether or not stimulating ovulation with letrozole or clomid to get them to create their own corpus luteum 
in that patient population offers the biggest risk reduction. Because I think if you think about who the anovulatory patients are, traditionally are PCO patients who probably have predisposition for gestational diabetes, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, higher BMIs. I think if you're really trying to risk reduce IVF, that's a cohort where I'd love to see some really solid data to, to justify getting them to ovulate. In ovulatory women, the lab being busy and it being a, a burden for the lab to be able to coordinate FET cycle, I think it's not, not, not a strong enough argument for me. Maybe the AI will help. The AI will always help, Luis. All right, let's keep it going. We have a couple more articles to share with you all. Changing topics a little bit, we're going to keep moving on to the endometriosis section. Luis, I think you have the results of a randomized double-blind non-inferiority study looking at a new medication, Relagolix. That's right, Pietro. So the title of the article is Relagolix, an oral GnRH antagonist, reduces endometriosis-associated pain compared with Luproralin in Japanese women, a phase three randomized double-blind non-inferiority study. So this is a study coming out of Japan where, with first author, Dr. Harada, and senior author, Dr. Kirawaki. The objective was to evaluate the efficacy and safety of relugolix 40 milligrams compared to luprolide among women with endometriosis-associated pain. The way they did this was through a phase three, multi-center, randomized, double-blind, double-dummy, active-controlled, non-inferiority trial done between 2019 and 2020. The inclusion criteria were women at least age 20 with endometriosis and pelvic pain. Endometriosis was diagnosed either through previous surgery, through imaging by the identification of an endometrioma, or clinically. Uh, basically, physical uh, exam findings of restricted uterine mobility, pelvic tenderness, or in duration in the pouch of Douglas. Women that were recruited were randomized in a one-to-one -one ratio using block randomization to 24 weeks of treatment with either relugolix 40 milligrams a day or luprolide either 3.75 milligrams or 1.88 milligrams every four weeks, depending on weight. The primary endpoint was the change in the maximum visual analog scale score for pelvic pain from baseline on the 28 days before the end of treatment. And what did they find? Well, after randomizing 335 patients and therefore being adequately powered according to their calculations, changes in the maximum visual analog scale score for pelvic pain from baseline to the end of treatment were non-inferior for relugolics compared to luprolite. At the end of treatment, both had maximum visual analog scale scores below the daily pain threshold of 30, which suggested that the pain was below the threshold of impairing daily activities. Similar findings were also seen for dysmenorrhea, non-menstrual pelvic pain, and dyspareunia. Ovarian endometrioma size and bone mineral density decreased as well as safety profiles were also similar for both groups. More than 95% of women in both groups had amenorrhea by three months. However, menses returned earlier for those taking relugolix with a median of 38 days compared to luprolide, median of 68 days. Having said that, by approximately four months following treatment cessation, menses had returned to almost all patients. So my question to the table is, has anyone had any experience with the use of oral generative antagonists for the treatment of endometriosis-related pelvic pain? And taking it one step further, how about ART? We've um, used Elagolix, which is the one that is FDA approved, 
in the United States for endometriosis pain and have seen good success um, in improving our patients' pain scores. So I think it's great to see this other option of Relagolix. I, you know, would like to see how it compares to Elagolix, but I think the biggest benefit of using these oral GNRH antagonists is that you have this dose-dependent response where you do have the flexibility of doses. As in this study, they tried three different doses. And with that, you can help reduce some of the side effects that people have, the hot flashes, especially worried about patients' bone mineral density. So I was excited to see this. I believe this medication has in the past been used for prostate cancer, but it's great to see it being used for an endometriosis indication. And I think just um, with what you're saying, it seems like according to the authors of the paper, you know, the advantage of Relogolix is it's excellent adherence profiles, which, you know, in Elagolix, it can be a little cumbersome because it's multiple dosings during the day, whereas this one is just one dose. I'll tackle your second question about using it in IVF. I think it's an interesting idea, but I think you actually have to look at the, the bio, the pharmacokinetics of both of these medications. Elagolix has a very short half-life meaning that the peak concentration in the area under the curve that you get from that medication is very short-lived. So the actual suppression you get centrally is very, very short. You'd have to give the medication much more frequently than TID for elagolics to really feel comfortable that you're going to suppress any possible LH surge during stimulation. Elagolics has a slightly longer half-life, so you're able to get away with once daily dosing, but the central suppression you get from it is not anywhere comparable to an injectable GnRH antagonist. So I think if you're being conservative and not wasting a cycle, I think the injectable GnRH antagonist is still the way to go. Or you can always use an oral progestin. You're planning on freezing embryos. I am happy to see papers like this, though, get out um, and expand our ability to treat kind of common gynecologic disorders in ways that we hadn't thought of in decades. So I'm, I'm pleased that we're expanding our armamentarium and our approach to things. Maybe we're not ready to put it to IVF yet, but this is something we should all be aware of and get used to using. Kurt, you have the last paper in today's podcast. I can't believe we're talking about endometrial scratching again, but this is a slightly different take on it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this paper? Yeah, I'm, I'm most happy to see this paper too. It, it is a slightly different take. The differences um, that we're talking about, not in IVF. So this is a randomized trial titled The Effect of Endometrial Scratching on Unassisted Conception for Unexplained Infertility. It's done by a large consortium with the uh, first author, Dr. Wong, um, and Cindy Farquhar and her group did a great job. So it's pretty self-explanatory in the paper. The objective is to determine whether endometrial scratching increases the chance of live birth in women with unexplained infertility attempting to conceive without AORT. It, again, is a randomized, controlled, participant-blinded trial. You can't blind the operator who's doing the scratching, of course. And Basically, it's as, as advertised. So you're assigned to receive an endometrial biopsy or a placebo procedure, a sham procedure. And then you are followed with, in this case, unprotected intercourse uh, with the intention of conceiving over the next three months. The study had uh, 220 women randomized and had a, as you might expect, relatively modest but real pregnancy rate of 9% in one group compared to 7% in the other. And that translates to a non-statistically significant finding therefore saying that the chance of pregnancy with the intervention of an um, endometrial biopsy, or I should be more specific, of the intention of scratching the endometrium, did not help. It didn't help in clinical pregnancy rate, didn't help in viable pregnancy rate, ongoing pregnancy rate, miscarriage, and, and it did 
obviously increase the cost and increase the pain. So, you know, again, this is incremental knowledge, but it's important to get level one evidence in all aspects, because often when you see a procedure that's advocated, and we all know that this was advocated for intuitive reasons, you know, there's a wonderful immune response in the endometrium, there's the potential benefits of a healing response, all of which are nicely articulated in Carl Hansen's um, reflection, but it just didn't translate to actually working. Whenever you get a randomized trial that doesn't work, people say, well, obviously it was the wrong intervention, it was the wrong population, but it works in this. And if you, you know, do it on a lunar eclipse on a Monday, then it'll work. And so, you know, it, this is really just getting down to the nitty gritty that there really is no benefit of endometrial scratching. Another example of a well-meaning, intuitive grasp at something to help our patients that I think has been put to rest and just simply doesn't work. Well said. On that note, we'll end. I want to thank Luis and Erica for, again for joining us on the podcast and pinch hitting for Eve and Micah. Eve and Micah, we look forward to seeing you on next month's recording. As always, the conversation continues beyond today's podcast. You can stay tuned with FNS by following our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook accounts. And make sure you check out the second companion episode to FNS On Air, FNS Unplugged. For myself, Blake Evans, and Dalon James, the media editors for the sister journals, tell you a little bit about some of the best articles that are coming out in the fertility and sterility family of journals. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next month. It's a pleasure having you guys. We look forward to getting back um, Micah and Eve perhaps next month. But if not, keep listening, keep sending us feedback and uh, thank you for the support. Thank you for inviting me. And it was a real pleasure being here. And definitely we're missing Mike on the podcast. Yes, thank you all. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.